I'd like for you to imagine a scene. Traffic is dense in the downtown. You feel a lot of stress because you have an important appointment to make. And as is typical, when you're in a hurry, you're downtown, traffic is dense. There's no parking except one. And to take it, you have to parallel park your car. And you're bad at parallel parking your car. You try, you try again, you can't quite get it. Cars begin to honk at you, and it dawns on you that you are not going to be able to parallel park your car, and you begin to feel your stress level go up a little bit. You ever felt that? And then all of a sudden, there is a knock on your window, and it's a good friend who happened to be walking down the sidewalk. They saw you in, their, in your distress, and she says to you, I can help you. I can help you. I can parallel park the car for you. Let me have the car keys. Let me get behind the steering wheel, and I'll park that car for you. And you're a little hesitant, but you decide you're going to trust that person. And so you get out from behind the steering wheel. You hand them the keys. They get behind the steering wheel, and they parallel that park, parallel park that car for you. And it feels like your life has just been saved. It feels like somebody has intervened in your life and just brought something great. You know, we sing a song at the end of sermons, and that time is what we call the invitation. It's an invitation to do something. Uh, it's, it's a part of modern life to think that human beings are receptacles and that what we are good for is just collecting data and collecting facts and collecting more data, but we don't do anything with it. When there was teaching going on in the ancient world, the teaching, the facts, the knowledge was always given with the expectation that people would take that information and it would affect their life somehow. And so that's what that invitation is at the end of the sermon. It is an invitation to do something with your life. Maybe you have decided that you want to become a Christian. You want to become a disciple of Jesus by taking the hands off of the steering wheel of your life and handing the Messiah the keys. Or maybe you have questions about what it means to be a Christian or even how you become one. And it might be that you are a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, but you have not been living up to what that name means. Whatever the need might be, and whatever the case, when we sing that next song, the song after this sermon, there are going to be some shepherds down here at the front that would love to meet with you and talk with you and pray with you. And whatever need you have, you can bring it down to the front and they will minister to you. Let's bow our heads and pray. <clears throat> Father, we love your word. And we love how it teaches us about a vision, not only for our future, but a vision for all of creation. And more than we are thankful for that vision, Father, we are thankful for you who make it so. In love and in forgiveness and mercy and all of the ways, Father, in your holiness and righteousness that you bring your kingdom back to bear in our life as human beings in your creation. That you bring it back to bear in our life that we know that we are blessed
and there are good things coming into our life, but the best thing is that it is you who have come into our life and we have come into your presence. For this we are grateful. And so as we approach our text this morning, and not just this one, but every word that is inspired by your Spirit that comes to us, we pray that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that there is a joy that wells up in us that it could never be contained if we had a thousand cups, that that be our reality on this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One day, 2,000 years ago, a large crowd gathered to listen to a carpenter who had turned an itinerant rabbi. Thirty years earlier in the south, down towards Jerusalem, there had been quite a ruckus in the land over the birth of a baby that was also said to be a king. There were stories of angels and shepherds in the night. There were stories of a miraculous moving star and magi from the east coming to a little city, a little town, a village really, the south of Jerusalem. There was the story of the horrific murder of young boys, an insane king, and prophecies coming to fulfillment. And then nothing. And then absolute silence for 30 years. And now there were stories that were beginning to surface again. Healings where there was no hope of healing. There was healing. Where there were people living in paralysis in their body, there was healing. Where there was pain, there was healing. Where there were seizures, there was healing. Where there are demons, where there were demons that had gone in and enslaved human beings, there was freedom. And once again, there was this prophetic voice out there that was saying, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, enter the kingdom of God, believe the good news. And crowds were beginning to seek out this carpenter, this rabbi, as he was going from village to village to village. And, and one day, among the hills just north of the Sea of Galilee, this rabbi, whose name was Yeshua, we would say it in in our modern ages, Jesus, the crowds had come to see him. And he sees them. And he goes up onto the side of one of those hills and he sits down, which was the teaching position of a rabbi in his day. And he begins to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones who will see God. And blessed are peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and you and you when people insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. And thus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we saw that Jesus began his ministry by preaching 
the good news of the kingdom of God. He was saying to everyone who would listen to him, village to village, up there in the north, he would say, repent, which meant because the kingdom of God is coming, change your life. There's a new life that is available to you. He would say to Nicodemus in John 3, he said, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are what? Born again, which means a brand new way of living. Which now brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is an articulate and succinct explanation on what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Let me say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is this articulate, succinct explanation, description of what life in the kingdom of God, that He is inviting everyone to come into, what that life looks like. And Christ begins with the Beatitudes. There are nine blessed are you statements that, that, that begin this sermon. And he begins with them because he's making a very, very profound statement for these folk. And the, the point is this. The kingdom of God is a blessing-rich life that is available to everyone. It is available to everyone. Now, the Beatitudes, if you've ever spent much time reading them, you know as well as I do, they can be a very difficult read, and it's been this way for generations and generations. I think one of the biggest mistakes is to think that that blessedness that Jesus is talking about, that that comes because of something that you and I have been able to achieve as human beings. I think that that is a huge mistake because it makes the Beatitudes legalistic. It, make it, it makes the Beatitudes sort of man-centered and man-effort-centered. It's saying... Uh, I get blessed because I choose poor. I'm blessed because I choose poor. There are two issues with that. Number one, doesn't that sort of sidestep the need for Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven? I just get poor. The other issue is that there's nothing inherently righteous in being poor. Poor people can be as greedy and materialistic as rich people. So, Think about the context. The crowds of people are listening to him. These are the very crowds that have heard the invitation in every village synagogue to enter God's kingdom and experience God's rule. And, by the way, they are the same crowds who have experienced the miracles of healing. Jesus could point to a man and he could say, here is a blessed man who has been healed because of the kingdom of God. And he could point to a little child that had been suffering and suffering and suffering from seizures, but now made whole because the kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus could point to a woman in the crowd who was out of her mind, a demon much more powerful than she, had captured her. And he could say, here is a blessed woman because the kingdom of God has freed her and restored her. And all of these people, all of these people are looking for some kind of hope in their distress, and the kingdom of God comes near, and their lives are changed. Now, that did not mean that all of a sudden, automatically, their lives would become trouble-free and void of pain and trouble. But for them, now, in that moment, there was an evidence of a power that blesses. A power that blesses that had come into their midst and forced them to reevaluate God and to reevaluate the world and to reevaluate their life in it. 
And what Jesus is trying to say in the Beatitudes is that the kingdom of God is a blessing-rich life that is available to everyone. It is available to the poor in spirit. Those whose life absolutely has nothing to offer anyone by human standards. It is available to those who mourn. Those who grieve because there's something missing or something has been taken or things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There is a place in the kingdom of heaven. It's available to the meek who choose not to exercise their power and therefore make themselves vulnerable in order for something good to be done in the life of another person. It's available to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are the ones who feel like they live, that they dwell, that they exist in a a desert that is void of justice and fairness in the world. It is available to the merciful who have chosen to be kind and compassionate or to be forgiving in a dog-eat-dog world. It's available to the pure in heart, those who choose to not to participate in evil or in the ways of evil. It's available to peacemakers who strive a difficult harmony in a fallen world full of ready-made enemies, where sometimes fighting evil with evil seems to make more sense than fighting it with good. And it's available for those that are persecuted for righteousness. The kingdom of God is open to anyone willing to pay the price for striving after God and honoring God in a world that is always rejecting God. And the reason that the kingdom of God life is available to everyone is because God is the loving and joyful blesser. God is a joyful, loving blesser. I don't know about you, but I am sick to death of God being depicted as a grouch. That God is just waiting for somebody to get out of the car and step on his lawn and he can yell, get off my grass. Or that he's some kind of a capricious tyrant that you never know when the lightning bolt is going to hit you or there's an anvil that's going to drop out of the sky. I'm tired of him being depicted as a cop on the prowl. Just waiting to write you up or to drag you in. Let me ask you a question. God is invisible to us. How do you then assess and understand an invisible heart? You can assess it and you can understand it and you can evaluate it by what it loves and by what it finds joy in. God rejoices in His creation. Psalm 104 says that the Lord rejoices in His works. God created the heavens and the earth. And in those first two chapters of Genesis, He uses a Hebrew word tov. is what God says. It's good. He creates the heavens and the earth and everything in between. And when he looks back on all of the things that he's made from, from, from toads to foxes to palm trees to pineapples to plums to figs, he says it's beautiful. It's good. This last week, Ellen and I took a cooking class. Not that we need it. But we're always planning uh, you know, to enjoy you know, the, the things that God blesses us with. So we took a cooking class and we were making this, uh, this salad dressing that had blue cheese in it and, and buttermilk and 
uh, all of these different things. And at the end, you know, they, they, they give you the, 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 the baby spoons. You can taste it. And we, we tasted it. And we said, man, that's good. But you know what we really meant? I'm never going to get tired of this. I could eat this all day. When, when God, when God looks at the world, He is, He, he looks, He loves to watch the sun. 865,000 miles thick, 1.3 million times bigger than the earth. He loves to watch the sun light up and heat up our solar system. Think about how God joyfully watches the creatures of the ocean the way that we enjoy would watch an aquarium. God never gets tired of watching a daisy, a, a bud of a daisy unfold. Never gets tired of it. He loves to watch the fall turn into winter, and winter into spring, and spring into summer, and then summer into fall. And he loves every star in the sky. He rejoices in his works. God rejoices in his son Jesus. What did he say when Jesus, the Jordan River, was baptized? Matthew chapter 3, this is my son whom I say it. He loves his son. And then he says, it's in him that I am so what? Pleased. God rejoices in his people. <coughs> in Jeremiah chapter 32, he says, I will give them one heart and one way they that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant that he's talking about the new covenant in Christ with them that I will not turn away so that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And guess what happens in heaven? All of heaven rejoices when a human comes to trust God with their life. In Luke chapter 15, I tell you, Jesus says, that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, when it comes to reading about God, I fear that we at times read our Bibles like going to an art museum and seeing only the signs that say, don't touch the paintings. Please keep quiet in the exhibition halls. And in so doing, we miss the paintings and the beauty and the awe and the inspiration that is around us on every wall. For Jesus, the world belongs to a joyful and a loving God, the most joyful being in existence. And out of joy and love, God cherishes human beings made in His image and wants to bless them, although for good reason, many times beyond our finite minds to understand those reasons, the world is other than the way He wants it. But the life of Jesus is the proof of the blessing rich life of the kingdom of God coming to anyone and everyone who is willing to accept it. So here's a question to think about for just a second. When Jesus is, is giving the Beatitudes, who is he talking about? 
Who is Jesus describing in the Beatitudes? The answer, I think, is he's describing himself. Jesus' life validates the Beatitudes. His life, the life of the Christ, was the most blessed, joy-filled, love-driven, God-trusting life, although he was the epitome of poor in the Spirit. There was no beauty, no majesty or appearance that attracted us to him. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. The hometown t-shirt said, nothing good comes from my hometown. By human standards, he had absolutely nothing to offer. But he also knew what it meant to mourn. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He more than anyone else knew that all of creation and that every human being were not what they were supposed to be. He mourned the loss of Eden. He mourned the presence of death, not only in the world, but in the presence and and the way that it affected and what it did to his friend. And he was meek. He knew in the hearts of his enemies was the desire in them to kill him. He knew what was in their heart. And when they struck him on the right cheek, he turned and offered his left cheek. And when he's up getting ready to be crucified, he can call 10,000 angels to save him, but he is meek. And he knows that there is a good that is going to come to us. He made himself vulnerable in order for the kingdom of God to come to every human being. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He hungered and thirsted. He literally went to the desert and fasted. And when the tempter came, said, I won't do it. I won't turn these rocks into bread. I will trust God. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was merciful. Merciful beyond my ability to describe His mercy to you this morning. His life was not diminished because He sought to be pure in heart. He was a peacemaker. It was in His DNA to bring God and man together, although man had made himself an enemy of God, and he knew what it was like to be persecuted for righteousness. From the day he was born, there was a powerful king that tried to kill him. And then later on, he had to face not only his own people, but the people of the conquering empire. As they put him, they sentenced him to death on the cross, although Pilate knew that he was innocent. But in all of this, Jesus lived in the richness of God's presence living an abundant life that he, would sure with, that he would share with anyone who wanted it. He would say, kingdom of God is where the blessing is. And 2,000 years later, he's still inviting people to enter the kingdom of God. If you've ever felt like a nobody, if you've ever wondered if anyone would ever look at you, let alone love you, Jesus sees you and he says, I have room for you in my kingdom. And if you've ever been brokenhearted, Jesus says, I have a place for you where your wounds can be healed and it's beside me in my kingdom. And if it seems like you never get a break, 
that nothing goes your way, that it's setback after setback after setback, never, nothing ever seems to go right. Jesus says, I have a place for you in my kingdom. If you have ever been so hungry for a meaningful life and have become disillusioned and let down time and time again, Jesus invites you to the blessing-rich life of his kingdom. And if you feel guilty, and you don't know if you'll ever get over that guilt, Jesus says, I know a place where forgiveness reigns. It is a kingdom founded on my grace and my mercy. There is forgiveness for your soul. The kingdom of God is available to everyone. And the Messiah, the Lord, the crucified Jesus says, come. Remember the invitation. Let's stand and sing. Pray, I open up my heart to my Lord. Every time I close my eyes, I feel the sweet embrace of my Lord. I don't know why so many things seem to get in the way of seeing my God's glory, but I try every day to see Him and to thank Him for all the things He I see a child, I see the gentleness of my Lord. Every time I watch a storm, I know the awesome power of my I don't know why so many 